You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. An amazing stat came out, my friend, uh, from Major League Baseball Communications right after our last episode posted, saying that entering the second half of the season, MLB attendance has generated significant gains with the implementation of new rules and a balanced schedule. Average attendance is 8.11% higher than it was in 2022, and 77% of Major League Baseball clubs are registering attendance increases. Now, my first thought when I look at that is, I remember that 2022 still had, at least at the beginning of the year, a section of the population, I wasn't one of them, but there was a section of the population that still wasn't going out and doing things yet. We were still close enough to COVID that could have something to do with the numbers. But even that, it shows that across the across the league, you, you had increases this season so far in everyday attendance. Meanwhile, the White Sox are down 15.3% per game when you look at their per game average this year and, and last year. And remember, those are seats that were paid for, not seats that are being used. I mean, you, you would think at some point somebody would realize there's a problem in terms of team perception and maybe some heads would roll. Oh, no, there's there's no problems here. What are you talking about? <laughs> the problem is the fans. The fans are just terrible human beings that don't deserve the White Sox. And not, not, you know, not the idea that we were sold that, I don't know, 2022 and 2023 were going to be like championship contending years. And instead, we're looking at a trade deadline coming up where we're talking about, you know, whether or not the Dodgers and Rangers really want Lucas Giolito and Lance Lynn. I love the I love the Lucas Giolito hype, right? I love it. Oh, isn't that great? Do you think that John Morosi is possibly just a Dodgers fan who wants Lucas Giolito on his team so badly that he's trying to stir stuff up? Like, like here, I'll break some news for you right now. Breaking news in Major League Baseball. Teams that are good, that are trying to win championships, are interested in really good players that are currently on bad teams that have expiring contracts or contracts that may expire within the next year or so that they can get their hands on because they would be available because those teams are out of the playoffs. More details at 11. Like, this is not shocking stuff. I feel like every time there's a White Sox player that is potentially on the trading block, the, the first thing we hear about is, oh, the Dodgers. <laughs> go, and, go and trade with the Dodgers. And it's it, it, it. What do they? They never really. First of all, they never really, really pull those off. But Tim Anderson, I feel like Tim Anderson to the Dodgers was a thing for a while there. Now, obviously, TA has fallen on some hard times, so it may or may not make much sense anymore. But that that seemed to be, especially when the Dodgers lost Gavin Lux and they didn't have a shortstop because Corey Seager had signed with the Rangers last year. Oh, TA, TA to the Dodgers, done deal, and and you know we'll be able to get a huge haul from them and. No, and and even if Lucas Giolito goes there, I mean, I don't know what the Dodgers are willing to give up for him. This episode of Socks in the Basement and every episode of Socks in the Basement brought to you by Cork and Carey at the Park, the official home of the podcast for fans by fans at 33rd in Princeton in the shadow of the ballpark with an award-winning menu of burgers and ballpark favorites and an amazing price 
get the kids over there, bring the family over, sit down, have a meal inside, outside, pregame. This is how I start every White Sox home game. It's at Cork and Carry at the park. I get over there afterwards as well. Always a party, win or lose. An extensive bar with a rotation of craft beers, familiar favorites, spirits, and wines. 33rd in Princeton. See more at corkandcarry.com. Remember, you can leave messages at SoxInTheBasement.com. There's a little microphone there. One of our regular callers checked in on what he wants in terms of trade return this week. Hey, White Sox in the basement. If I was making trades, I'd be going to the top shelf making them trades because you don't want medium shelf or bottom shelf. You want you always got to go with the top shelf, and that's it. If you want somebody good, you're going to have to give up something good. Ladies and gentlemen, the next uh, general manager of the Chicago White Sox. I like that philosophy. You get your top-tier players instead of your lower-tier players when you trade away your players, and you don't trade away your players unless you get something back for them. Yeah, That guy could fill in right now for Rick Hahn. Oh, absolutely. I, I I think, I mean, that harkens back to the Larry Himes era. That was, that's... <laughs> I, mean, that's... I mean, and here's the thing. Don't worry, my friend. You're going to get what you want, at least on paper, because Rick Hahn loves to just pull up the MLB Pipeline Top 100 prospect list and just pick off of it, right? And the Dodgers have a ridiculous amount of prospects. I mean, right away, I look at the fact that they have two catching prospects, and I'm like, one of them's coming to the White Sox. If you trade away Lucas Giolito, trust me, it will be the one the Dodgers think less of. Oh, absolutely. But that's what you'll end up with, right? And the team will be like, Top 100 prospect. Like, they've got multiple pitchers like on the list right now. As you go down and you look at what the Dodgers have, you would say, okay, well, uh, Emmett Sheehan is on this list and Ryan Pepio is on this list and Nick Frazzo uh, is on this list. Uh, The one that is least valuable will come along with the least valuable catcher. And Rick Hahn will tell you, I got two top 100 prospects on the list. And we all know from experience, remember when the White Sox had like nine of them on the list, not all of them like panned out, right? Some of them are Blake Rutherford. Some of them are Reynaldo Lopez, who just ends up being an up-and-down relief pitcher and not an actual member of your starting five. We know this because we've had guys on that list as well. And so I expect it. I expect the deal is going to get made. You're going to have like, oh, look at this haul that Rick Hahn got, right? And the Rick Hahn bots will be doing that thing where they put his face over Conor McGregor's body as he struts around, and they'll be sending out those videos on social media. But in the end, it really doesn't mean anything if you can't identify the right talent and develop it. And that's why you got to fire Rick Hahn and fire Kenny Williams and fire Chris Getz and fire everybody else in there and get somebody else to make these decisions. Well, I'll make the prediction right now. The two guys he gets back for Lucas Giolito are Nick Frasso, who is he's in the he's up there. He's, on he's the high list. up there for the Dodgers. Number ninety one overall. He grades as a potential mid rotation guy if he can make the rotation. Otherwise, probably a high end reliever just because he has a fastball. And the other guy will be Andy Pages. And Andy Page is only because, as a hitter, he is struggling to a 257 average and has like a 26% strikeout rate in the minors, which makes him perfect for the White Sox because he'll come up and not be able to do much of anything, and they'll rush him up here too fast. Yeah, we're we're just so much we're so much positivity I'm here. Jaded. Listen, if you think that we're <laughs> if you think we're negative going into the second half, here's some here's some messages that we've gotten through the contact form at SoxInTheBasement.com. Uh, this one's from Tommy who writes, make August 11th boycott the game day. Milwaukee was the first home game in 1981 after Reinstorf bought the team. 
time for fans to get together and make a statement. Trust me, Tommy, he won't care. He's just going to look at the sold tickets. He's going to put out that's who attended. If the place was, if the place had tumbleweeds going through it, they would use camera angles to try to hide it from you because there's no impartiality by somebody who's getting paid by the team, either in your pregame, your postgame, your broadcast, nothing like they get paid by the team and they'll do whatever they can to make it look like it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, the real statement was what the A's did is when they packed the stadium, when you pack a stadium, and the team is terrible, and it's unexpected. And then the fan base chants sell the team for nine innings like they did in Oakland. That's a statement. But even then, what happened? Manfred made fun of them all, and nothing changed in Oakland. This is just this is just the world we live in. That you know, People always say it's morbid to sit around and wait for somebody to die, but that's kind of what you're doing as a White Sox fan. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we, we're, we've stopped showing up in droves, if the tumbleweeds were there, they would count towards the attendance, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, if you're a tumbleweed and you're in the 500 level, there's no way you're going to be able to tumble down to the field. No, you're not allowed so, down there. Tumbleweeds no. must stay in their level. Exactly. <laughs> Here's another message. Hi, Chris and Ed. Congrats on your 500th show. Living in L.A. Oh, where Lucas Giolito may be going, according to reports yeah. this week. Thank you guys for allowing me to stay connected with the White Sox and lamenting this awful rebuild. Next time, when you start off the show with Fire Rick, Fire Kenny, add this last line. Hey, Jerry, you had your fun. How about selling the team? To whom may you say, why not to the Chicago White Sox fans? Maybe if the White Sox fans created a co-op. They could purchase the team, a la the Green Bay Packers. Now, here's my only concern with this, Ed. My concern is, have you ever spent time on social media with White Sox fans? We eat our own. (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) If if you go into the comments field, people are swearing at each other. Like, we we have a group page on Facebook, and I get somebody reported almost on an every other day basis because somebody just starts ripping somebody else and, and picking on them in the thing. You go on Twitter, Sox fans go after each other. We all have ideas. Like, we all know it's bad, right? We all know they're bad and somebody else has to run the team. The problem is, if you let all White Sox fans take a vote on what to do with the team, it'd probably be worse. It would be more out of control. I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful idea to buy stock in your team, right? Like, that'd be great. And then maybe you just vote for a general manager. And then, and then that general manager gets like a five-year contract and we don't get to touch the team. That's the only way that I would let that happen in, in, a, in the pipe dream world where it could even happen in the first place, which is probably not ever, never. Well, uh, well and, and the Packers are run like any other corporation. You, you have shareholders, but there's still a board of directors. They're still in charge of making the decisions. They hire, fire, et cetera. And, and that's going to be the problem with, with the idea of the White Sox as a democracy is electing a board of directors and not having that board of directors somehow be Larry Garcia, Daryl Boston, (laughs) Ozzy. Sox fans, when you're looking at exterior windows, doors, patio doors, storm doors, the only place to go, the first and last stop, window and door superstore of Oak Forest. No high pressure sales. They're not sitting in your house pushing you. Instead, you're at their place, their showroom. You're seeing real-sized examples. You're not looking at a magazine picture to look at that handle or what the glass is going to look like. You have it right there in front of you. There's an owner right there on site, not some sales guy. There's an owner on site when they put the work in with their own workers. They're not farming it out. That's how they do it. They've been doing it that way for 40 years in Oak Forest since 1985. 
all major brands, custom made, no stock items, a perfect fit. This is where you go. Half block east of 159th and Ridgeland, 6280, 159th Street, window and door superstore of Oak Forest. All right, so we talked about the draft last week. And Ed and I just kind of threw some stuff at the wall and we were kind of laughing. We were having a good time. It was our 500th episode. And and then the expert reached out to me and James Fox of Future Sox is on the line and uh, he wants to talk draft now that it's all over. How are you, James? Oh, good, sir. How you doing? I'm good. So how crazy were we when we said, oh, that's a very Rick Hahn draft or that's a very Kenny Williams draft or look at this type of player here. And they're, you know, these guys are all polished, but they got to take them another step. Can they really do it? Like, take us through what really happens behind the scenes and who's picking these players. Yeah, so I mean, like the White Sox draft room, and like I've never been in it, but you know, there's always been talk about just like them having split camps, right? And you never know kind of who's making the decisions. And back in the day, they draft all these tools, the athletes, and that all kind of got put on Kenny. And then when Nick Hosteller was in charge, it was kind of seen as like, you know, Rick Hahn wanted these like safer, like quick moving college guys and you know, a lot of that, like, strategy, I think, in hindsight, like, didn't work out. And Mike Shirley took over. And it's been pretty much, like, premium upside so far. And, like, look, I'm under the interpretation that they've kind of taken Mike Shirley's recommendation on stuff. And this year, like, I would say, I'll say, like, the pick is a little bit different. But, you know, I don't think that necessarily means that they didn't take the guy that they think is the best guy. But, I mean, like, in Shirley's first year, they took Garrett Crochet, we, we've seen, like, the, the team, how they've used Garrett Crochet. Mike Shirley thought he was getting a, you know, a mid-rotation left-handed starter. And then, you know, it's out of his hands when, you know, they, they take Garrett Crochet and rush him to the big leagues in a bullpen role, right? Like, that's not necessarily what the vision was when he was drafted. And then back-to-back prep guys, Colson Montgomery and Noah Schultz, who, you know, are both top 100 prospects and, you know, Colson Montgomery looks like, I mean, he's like a top 25 prospect in baseball. I said on other shows, I mean, guys like Keith Law and Kylie McDaniel think Colson Montgomery is a superstar. So, you know, so then I think this year with Jacob Gonzalez, I mean, yeah, it's a college guy. So it's the first time that Mike Shirley's taken a college position player, but I do think it fits. I mean, Jacob Gonzalez is a guy who, you know, before the season was looked at as like a top six or seven pick, he didn't have a great year. He had a fine year. Um, and I just think at 15, like, you're taking the guy who you think is the best guy and the guy that's going to fall to you. Like, look, I'm on record saying that I prefer to prep guy, but I mean, like if they think Jacob Gonzalez is the best option there, like, you know, I was fine with that. I like kind of seeing the totality of the 20 picks, like before I'm too critical of one singular pick. So like that one makes sense, like looking at it in retrospect. And then I guess just like, you know, the conversation you guys had, just about like Rick Hahn and whatever, like, you know, I, I don't think Rick Hahn and even Kenny like have much to do with like most of the rest of the picks. Cause they're just not the experts on it. Like, and even I told you off air, like Mike Shirley isn't necessarily either like on day three, like you're really reliant on um, like area scouts to know which guys you could get signed for what money. And you're like, Hey, we need a shortstop. Look at our board. Hey, like you're the area scout in Arizona. Okay. Let's take this guy type thing. So, you know, after day one, it it is pretty much like on the scouts, in my opinion. Now I do think the front office has a lot of input in the first pick. And then like, I guess like the overall probably strategy 
you know, of the bonus pool, you know, where it's like, Hey, we're going to go college pitching heavy. Okay, cool. You know, that sort of thing. But I mean, it's not like Rick Hahn's just sitting around making all these picks because he really doesn't know any of the players. So first pick likely has a lot of influence from the big names in the front office. They're at least saying, I want to go in this direction, or you've got to explain to them, this is what I want to do. Here's a couple of players, and they may have some heavy input. Mike Shirley then's doing it for a couple of rounds, but then he's very quickly getting into that uh, that third day, and it's essentially, who's my scout that I trust, and this guy feels really strongly about this guy, and we're signing him. That's the best way to kind of to wrap that up? Yeah, and I think, like, one, like, offshoot thing. So, like, the 12th and 18th rounders, right, they're both, like, Arizona pitchers. A guy, Matthias Lacombe, he's a little bit interesting. Um, Like, he, you know, he wants to be the first French-born player to reach the majors, okay? Yeah, like, pretty lofty for a 12th rounder, whatever. And then there's another lefty Juco guy in round 18. So the signing scout there is John Kazanis from Arizona. And he has guys, like, every year. Tanner Banks was his... You know, there's a guy, Sean Murphy, um, that's been pretty good in low A this year with a 15th rounder. That was his. John Kazanis is the guy that found Mark Burley, like, all those years ago. He routinely drafts pitching out of Arizona. And, he, you know, he's had a, a lot of hits. And these guys have, you know, these guys remember all their misses, too, obviously. But, you know, so that's where, like, you kind of go to the well on day three every year. Like, oh, there's the Kazanis lefty again, you know. So, yeah, like, I think trends like that kind of form. Is it one of those things where there are scouts that are in the organization that have a good reputation because of guys that they found and then other scouts, it's been a while. Like if you're Mike Shirley and you're sitting there and I know you're not, but I I know that you're kind of plugged in right now as to how things work, especially uh, when it comes to the draft and, and, and these future prospects and everything because of what you do over at future stocks. But is it one of those things where at some point Mike Shirley's probably sitting there saying, this guy has had some wins recently or in his career as a scout while this guy's over here telling me you got to draft this kid and he hasn't gotten anything done right in the last couple of years. Like, is that how it works? Cause that's how I imagine this kind of thing going. Sometimes like I was on the conference call and I asked, so Warren Hughes is a longtime scout, like down towards the Mississippi area. He He's the one that was credited with Tim Anderson. And, you know, there's some years where there's not players in that area. So Warren Hughes doesn't get any guys drafted. This year out of the 20 picks, Warren Hughes got five of them. Um, and he was the, you know, the first few. I mean, he he got Jacob Gonzalez. He got Grant Taylor. Um, you know, and then I believe he got, like, the, the fourth rounder and maybe the fifth rounder, too. So, like, Louisiana, Mississippi is his area. I just kind of think, like, sometimes, you know, sometimes it works out that way. And then I think your really good guys that always find players end up getting promoted from area scout to like cross checker. So basically there's area scouts that are in all these different parts of the country. Then there's like a supervisor essentially that like, you know, there's like four or five supervisors. There's like an East coast cross checker, a West coast cross checker. Um, and then there's like an assistant scouting director and then a scouting director, you know, probably just like every other industry, right. Where stuff goes up the chain. I mean, that's where like your scouting director just isn't, going to be able to see all these players. You have to rely on reports and trust the people that you've hired to do their jobs, essentially. You know what I like about what you just said, though, is the guy that found Tim Anderson. I mean, throw out what's happened to him this year. The guy who found T.A. is the same guy that sat there and said Jacob Gonzalez is a pick that you should make at 15. James Fox and every guest here on Socks in the Basement is brought to you proudly by the village of Lamont. Want to experience a downtown with real history, great eats and drinks, and green spaces filled with adventure? 
Visit the village of Lamont. Shop, dine, drink, explore, see all the festivals and happenings going on there this weekend and beyond at LamontDowntown.com. But James, I'm telling you, if you told me that a scout found Tim Anderson at shortstop and then just told the White Sox this year your 15 overall pick, your, your number 15 overall pick, your first round pick should be this shortstop that I scouted, that's the kind of thing that makes me say, all right, I get that pick. I like it. Yeah, and I think there's like a track record with Jacob Gonzalez too. And look, I know I just told you, like, I would always prefer the prep guy. Like, it is about like winning at some point, right? Like at the big league level. So like, I understand going college if some of your top prospects were high school guys. And like, cause you're kind of on the same trajectory then, right? Like, uh, like Colson Montgomery and Jacob Gonzalez could reach Chicago like at the same time, right? Whereas if you're taking another high school guy, maybe Colson Montgomery is in the big leagues and you're waiting a year and a half on this other guy, right? And then your timelines kind of don't match. So yeah, it's all just like a big piece of the puzzle. The bonus pool comes into play. You know, it's just kind of, you know, you have to draft 20 players, the 20 best players that you can draft that fit like, you know, in the White Sox case, in the nine and a half million dollars, basically, that they have to spend. You know, I know we talked George Wolkow. That's why, like, once these bonuses come in, I'll stack the draft, like, in order of who got paid what. And that's basically your order, essentially, is how I always do it. Let's talk about the guy who's going to be the hype guy. I can't believe a guy picked in the seventh round is the guy that everybody's talking about. And it's because he's supposed to be the left-handed Aaron Judge. I think it was a throwaway line in Scott Merkin's article, but people just latched on to George Wolkow. This is a big dude. He's local. And his quote was, my goal was not to be drafted. My goal is to be in the Hall of Fame and not to be compared to Aaron Judge, but to have people compared to me. I mean, that's some great talk. But it sounds like all he really does is hit the ball really hard, and he's got a lot that he's got to work on. What's your take on this guy? Yeah, so I think it's a worthwhile like gamble where they did it, right? So you're going to have some picks in front of George Wolkow that don't get very much money, and then George Wolkow is going to get a million plus, like probably you know 1.2, 1.3, something like that. The biggest thing is George Wolkow really wanted to be a professional baseball player. He reclassified into this high school class. You know, thinking he was going to go a lot higher, obviously. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tools here, but like a lot of teams did pass on this guy. I think, I think that's important to know. And, you know, something happened on draft day where, look, I don't know if this was the White Sox plan all along or, you know, some guys got taken and they just had extra money. And the way it was kind of played out was, you know, the area scout, JJ Lally. And I will say Lally is credited with a lot of local guys with Noah Schultz and, you know, and kind of called uh, Wolkow and called the advisor. And he's like, look, we have this much. Like, we're willing to take you and pay you this. Like, are you in? Yay or nay? And George Wolkow decided to turn pro. You know, it's massive raw, pow- raw power. Um, you know, it is, it's a lot of swing and miss. There's a lot of swing, bad swing decisions and things. He's playing in the Northwood League right now and struggling. But, I mean, he's 17, man. He's not going to be 18 until January. This is a two-year rookie ball guy. You'll see him on White Sox top 30s. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's just a, a big upside swing. And I think people have liked this about Mike Shirley. Where you, I mean, I think you, you have more certainty, like in the first round with kind of a quick mover that isn't a super duper high ceiling, but it's a high floor. But then when you come back with picks like this, like I think it kind of balances out the draft class. So I, you know, I think it's nothing but, 
positive, but people just have to kind of know what this is. I mean, this is a long development path. I mean, he's going to go to Arizona and play, and I wouldn't be surprised if he plays in Arizona and rookie ball again next season too. It's just, it's going to take a while and that's fine. All right. Listen, before I let you out of here, something that doesn't have to do with the draft that I got to ask you, uh, if you had your druthers, what would you do right now with the current roster? Because it really we're, we should be planning for the next season. Yeah, I mean, this should be over. I mean, honestly, like, you want to see Carlos Perez at catcher as much as possible. You want Lenin Sosa at second, and Colas has got to play every day. Look, I think the writing's on the wall here. They're going to trade everything that they can that's, like, short-term. I think the tough question is, like, what are you going to be next year realistically? And that should, like, guide your path, right? Because I think Dylan Cease is the big name here. Look, I, I think typical White Sox, like, they would keep Dylan Cease and then win 75 games next year, and then you end up trading him after next season and you get far less for him. So to me, like, I don't really understand, like, some of the Lucas Giolito stuff, but to me, like, I, I would try to sign Giolito and I would consider trading Cease. Just because, like, I think you can get the most for Dylan Cease. He's a Scott Boris client. He's not staying. Like, can, can you realistically win this division next year with a retool and less ownership spends a ton of money. Like I'd say no. So that, I think the bigger questions is like, how deep does this go? Right. Cause like, look, like Kelly's probably moving and Graveman's moving and you'll see, you know, they'll trade Lance Lynn to Texas because Bruce Bochy wants them. But like, it just doesn't really move the meter on bringing a whole ton back. So then like, what do you see yourself as next year? I think is the big question. And, who ultimately gets to make those decisions. I mean, so the, the, these are the, you know, the topics probably for the next like four or five weeks is my guess. James Fox writes for future socks. I guarantee you they got a great write up on every single draft pick. And uh, I really enjoyed the insight into what happens behind the scenes uh, at the draft that will help us the next time that we, uh, we make fun of them. We'll, we'll be more informed. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, making fun of them is definitely warranted. I just, you know, I, I personally, I just, I personally think that Mike Shirley is the best scout, like in that room. So I think listening to him is like kind of a good idea. Socks in the basement listeners do the hard work. And if you're a hardworking man or woman on the South side, you need to be outfitted properly. And that's why you should visit Red Wing Shoes in Evergreen Park, New Lenox, and Geneva. A work boots specialty store that carries sizes from 6 to 16 and feet as wide as 4E. A 115-year-old company that came out of Red Wing, Minnesota. And one of its largest stores in the entire Midwest is in Evergreen Park, Illinois, ever since 1976. When you're on your feet, the footwear is everything. So why not get an expert fitting? They warranty, repair, and offer free conditioning with laces. And they also carry Carhartt work clothing as well. Located at 3347 West 95th Street in Evergreen Park, Illinois, at 208 East Maple Street on Route 30 in New Lenox, or at 1749 South Randall Road in Geneva. Visit them today. You work hard. You've earned it. Red Wing Shoes. James Fox has a really interesting idea there at the end after he explains to us what really happens behind the scenes. And I'm, I'm going to tell you something right now. After listening to him and him talk about the scouts, I've decided in the make-believe world that I live in when I take a shower in the morning and I go in there and I fantasize about being in charge of the White Sox. And I do this. And I'm sure other White Sox oh, fans For a second too. there, I thought you were saying you, you fantasize about taking a shower. I'm like, dude, you can do that. No, 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 no. You have I take the shower. 
But unlike unlike others that may have different fantasies when they're inside the shower, I fantasize about running the White Sox. I know it's weird, but this is what I do. Sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, like, if I suddenly were in charge, what would I do with this team? You know, as I'm in there in the morning and I'm scrubbing all the hard to reach places, that's what I'm doing. And I painted a picture in your head. You're never going to be able to get out of your head. And I apologize for that. But that's what I'm doing. And I I decided after talking to James (laughs) and yes, James, I was thinking about what you said to me in the shower. So I was thinking about you as well. I was thinking about the idea that if I were in charge, the first thing I would do if I were suddenly the general manager of this team is I would bring every scout into Chicago and I would make them scout their own team for a week. And then when they sat down, I would be like, what do you think, honestly? And those that say there's no no problem whatsoever, I would fire because they don't know what they're doing. And those that told me what the problems were, I would know who to listen to in the future. And, and, and that, that would be one of the first things I would do when you listen to how James talks about the scouting. But the other thing he says is Dylan Cease would be a great trade candidate because of the Scott Boros representation. And I agree 100%. After he said it, I sat there and said, you know what? He's right. Why not be proactive? You know you're never going to sign Dylan Cease before he hits free agency. If this is the height of his value, strike now. Because 2024 is probably not the year, folks. It's really 25. Because, Ed, we've got guys coming up or that should be ready to contribute by 25. And we should see some more development out of guys like Vaughn. And we're going to have several of these guys still under contract. Like, why not sign Giolito? And move your biggest piece. You missed out on the opportunity to move Anderson at his height. Why not move Cease at his height when you know that he's not going to sign with you until he tests free agency? Well, here's the here's the, the trick with that, though. Okay, Because you and I, when we were talking about the trade candidates before, we both agree that, like Luis Robert, trading Dylan Cease would be something that we would just, you, you couldn't digest that. You know, but he does make a valid point. James Fox makes a very valid point. And I do think that there is some... Something to be said about trading Dylan Cease. The question is, do you trust Rick Hahn to get the right package? Because that type of a move, leveraging Dylan Cease at the height of his powers while he's still under control, uh, before he becomes uh, you know, a, a huge free agent dollar sign waiting to happen, for any of these teams that might be looking for him. And, and you could open that up beyond just teams that are, con- that are competing this year. It could be a team that sits there and says, 2024 might be our year. Okay, so some of the teams that that are maybe having some rough go of it, uh, you know, well the Cardinals are an example. They're a team that they're always kind of in the in the go mode, right? They're rarely in a in a full rebuild. They might look at Dylan Cease and sit there and go, you know what? That might put us back into the NL Central next year. Or you might have a team like the Padres that are struggling this year, but are are always going to be on the lookout for pitching. And they might sit there and go, hey, that's that's the type of thing that might put us in contention for next year and the year after. What are you going to get for them, though? Because the thing that has me the most bothered by this is the conversation about Rick Hahn going out and getting prospects for these guys. Because the prospect thing, if they're not going to play right away, if they're not major league ready, and we've got to wait two or three years for whatever Dylan Cease's haul is, then you might be better off sitting there saying, we're going we're gonna to take the one year that we got with this guy because you don't have, I mean, yes, I know you do have Noah Schultz, for example, will probably be here in a couple of years. Uh, Jonathan Cannon will probably be here in a couple of years. Sean Burke, I don't think is... Very good, but he'll be here probably this year. You know, I mean, you got guys that are coming up, but if you're going to get Cease out there and you get a bunch of high leverage, 
will be good in the future prospects, guys that are going to be ready in like three years, I think that would be a, a bit of a mistake. But if you if you if you trade him and you can get back, if you can plug a, like two or three holes with with Dylan Cease, and I think you could. Absolutely. Hell, if you need to trade his mustache to one team and trade the rest of them to another, you could probably pull that off too. Imagine just dealing him to the Rangers who just love pitching and establish pitching more than their their prospects. And I'm not saying get Dane Dunning, but take two out of three of Owen White, Brock Porter, and Jack Leiter. And then throw in that uh, Luis Angel Acuna or Justin Foscue. Well, Foscue's, Foscue's the guy I want because he's blocked. Yeah. They, they, the Rangers need to get rid of Justin Foscue in, the, in, in a way. You're right about the idea that if you do trade a cease, there are more partners that are out there right now. And, and it would be the shocking move that nobody saw coming. But that would require them to think outside the box and be and be smart. And that's just not this front office, is it? Well, that's why we need to get together as White Sox fans, buy the team, and vote them out. No, that's why we need this guy. If I was making trades, I'd be going to the top shelf making them trades because you don't want medium shelf or bottom shelf. You want you always got to go with the top shelf, and that's it. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always on SocksInTheBasement.com.